You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. He is risen, just as He said. You know who said that? The angel did. It was the first recorded words of the Lord about the Lord Jesus on that first Resurrection Monday, Sunday. He is risen, just as He said. The women witnessed it, and they proclaimed it. The disciples were witness to a resurrected Christ, and they proclaimed it. And those who came after the disciples proclaimed it. He is risen just as He said. And that has been the message of the Christian church for the last 2,000 years. He is risen just as He said. And every year at this time, skeptics, agnostics, atheists, and quote-unquote scholars will crawl out of the woodwork to assure us of two things. First, they want to assure us that they themselves are Christians. They believe in Jesus. They love Jesus. They're not hostile to Christianity. They're not hostile to the things of the faith. They have faith themselves and they even believe the Bible to be true. The second thing that they rush to assure us is that you do not have to believe in a literal bodily resurrection to be a good Christian. You do not have to believe in a raised Jesus to be a good believer. They rush to assure us those two things. Both of them are lies. They're not believers if they deny the resurrection of Christ. You cannot be saved and deny that Christ is risen. You cannot. Because Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not some ancillary attachment to the Christian faith, something you can believe or not believe, depending on how you feel inclined. The resurrection is not some secondary doctrine, some nice myth, some nice legend, some comforting belief that may or may not be rooted in historical fact. The resurrection is none of those. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is nothing more than a very real, very significant, very crucial, essential fact of history. It is as much a part of history as the founding of this country, the Declaration of Independence, the Civil War, and any other historical reality. And to deny it is to perish in your sins for all of eternity. No matter how sincere you may believe, be, no matter what you may believe other than that, to deny the veracity, the historicity, the reality, the, the crucial aspect of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to deny the very thing that saves you. To deny the resurrection is to deny the Scriptures because He was raised again according to the Scriptures. It's to deny the accuracy of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and the rest of the New Testament. To deny the resurrection is to deny that the Scriptures are true. To deny that they are without error. To deny that they are accurate. And to deny that they are the Word of God and that they accurately reflect the Christian faith. 
To deny the resurrection is not only to deny the Scriptures, it is also to deny the words of the Son of God Himself. Hardly did Jesus ever mention His death without also mentioning His resurrection. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. There I'm going to be handed over to wicked men. They will do with me as they please. The Son of Man will suffer at their hands. He will be crucified and He will rise again. No sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. And the Son of Man, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Hardly did Jesus Himself speak of His mission or His purpose for coming to earth that He did not mention His death and with it His resurrection. And to deny that He is risen is to call Jesus Christ a liar. To deny that He's risen is to deny the Scriptures. It is to deny the Son. It is even to deny the very thing that saves you. Because He is raised for our justification. Our hope for heaven, our hope for forgiveness, our hope for eternal life, our hope for an eventual resurrection ourselves, to stand in the presence of God and to behold Him, all rests and all hinges on the resurrection. His death is meaningless if He's not risen. And His resurrection is meaningless if He did not pay for our sins. So to deny the resurrection is to deny the whole work of Christ that is done on your behalf. Because He was crucified for your sins, He was buried, and He rose again the third day. All of that goes together. And to deny the very bodily, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ is to deny the very belief that is essential to saving faith. Your faith cannot save you if your faith is in a dead Savior. That's not saving faith. To deny the resurrection is also to deny history because you know there was an empty tomb and there was no body and nobody ever produced a body. The Romans didn't have the body. The Jews didn't have the body. The disciples didn't have the body. They even promoted that false rumor that the disciples stole the body in order to cover up what they knew to be true. And that was that the disciples did not steal the body, but the body was gone nonetheless. And then you had all of the resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus, seen by the women, seen by the disciples, and seen, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, by over 500 people at one time. The appearances and the empty tomb. To deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ is like trying to deny that the Civil War happened or that the Constitution was written or to deny the existence of Napoleon or Nebuchadnezzar. It's a historical reality. And it happened. And it wasn't a spiritual resurrection. It was a literal, physical, bodily, historical resurrection from the dead. You don't want to deny that, do you? He is risen just as He said. And don't miss the importance of those last few words. Because if He said, I'll rise, and He didn't, He's a liar. Worse than a liar, is it? A veritable deceiver if He's not risen. But He is. And it's not an ancillary belief. It's not a secondary belief. It's not something you can take or leave. I'll take all of Christianity, but... I don't have any room for the supernatural resurrection of the Son of God. You don't have that option to be in that camp. If you are to be saved and to trust Christ, it means that you trust in a Savior who has risen from the dead. And the resurrection is crucial to the Christian faith, which is why it was the central element of all of the early church's preaching. 
Every time the disciples opened their mouths, they mentioned the resurrection of Christ. Most of them adding the fact that they had witnessed it themselves. And that was true throughout the early church, and it is true of this first Christian sermon in Acts chapter 2 that we're going to be looking at this morning. I hope your Bibles are still open to the book of Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at the second half of Peter's sermon. We looked at the first half last week and saw how Peter had laid the death of Christ at the very feet of those who were standing there on the day of Pentecost and heard him preach this message. More than 3,000 were gathered there that day. And Peter says in verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Aren't you glad that the sermon doesn't end on that statement? I'm glad that Peter continues. And he does. And the bulk of his message is not about the tongues phenomena that they had witnessed earlier in the chapter. The bulk of his message is not on explaining that. It's not even on the crucifixion of Christ. The bulk of Peter's message is spent on the resurrection of Christ. Because he begins in verse 24 with that wonderful word, but. You nailed Him to a cross and put Him to death, but. And I'm so thankful for that but. And as Peter continues, he gives to us four results of the resurrection. Four things that if the resurrection is true, then these four things are also true. And we're going to see them as we work our way through the text. First of all, in verse 24, if Christ is risen, then death is defeated. Look what Peter says. But God raised Him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for Him to be held in its power. God has raised Him up again, and in the resurrection of Christ... God has put an end to the agony of death. The word agony is a word that Peter uses that means birth pains. It was used of, a, of the birth pains of a woman in labor. And Peter says he has been in his resurrection set free or loosed from. God has for Christ by the resurrection put an end to the birth pains of death. And even by using all of those words, Peter pictures for us a woman who is in labor and she must give birth. That baby cannot stay in her womb. It must come forth. It's impossible for it not to. It has to. It must. And that's the picture that Peter uses. God has put an end to the birth pains, the agony of death for Christ. He didn't stay dead. He raised Him up. And not only is that true for Christ, but it is also true for you and I. Because Christ lives, death is no longer Really, death for us. For believers, death is not our enemy. You realize that? Death is that thing that ushers us into the presence of Christ. It's almost a welcome friend. Death no longer has its sting. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, after spending an entire chapter on the resurrection of Christ and proving that it happened and proving how necessary it is to the Christian faith, the Apostle Paul concludes by saying, O death, where is thy sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The strength of sin, the strength of death, and the victory of death rested in the law, but Christ has delivered us from all of that. And because of the resurrection, death has lost its sting. That doesn't mean that we don't mourn those who have passed on, but we mourn now as those who have hope, not as those who don't have hope. 
In the resurrection of Christ, He has taken away the sting of death. There's still sorrow there, but that bleakness, the darkness, the despair, the despondency, the depression that is in death, the lack of hope that death brings is no longer there. All of that has been taken away. Why? Because our Savior lives. And if I am united together with Christ in the likeness of His death, and if I am in Christ and Christ is seated in heaven, then I also will be united with Him in the likeness of His resurrection. There will come a day, Paul says in the book of Philippians, when this body of my lowly estate will be transformed just unto the likeness of His glorious body. And because He is risen, I will one day rise. Death is not the end for me. It's just a gateway to heaven. And we all pass through it. In His death, in His resurrection, He took away the agony of death. He took away the sting of death. So that it's no longer an enemy. Now it's almost a welcome friend. Because it brings you right into the presence of Christ if you know Him as Lord and Savior. Because your Savior lives. Do you notice what Peter says at the end of verse 24? It was impossible for him to be held in its power. You see that? Did Peter know that seven weeks prior to this? Did Peter know that on Friday while he was watching Christ be beaten and crucified? Did Peter know that on Saturday while he sat with the other disciples, undoubtedly very depressed, very despondent? Did he know that on that Sunday morning when the women were walking to the tomb, carrying the spices, getting ready to anoint the body, saying, who will roll away the stone for us? Did any of them know that it was impossible for Jesus Christ to be held in the power of death? I don't think any of them did. But Peter knows it now. Now he knows it. Now he knows that it is impossible because of God's purpose. God purposed to send His Son to atone for the sins of all those who will believe in Him. And He paid the price for sin. And it was also the purpose of God to raise Him up again from the dead. To demonstrate that His sacrifice was acceptable. And to declare Him to be the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. That was all part of the purpose of God. So how could death hold Him? How could death hold Him who is the resurrection and the life? He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in Me Though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. How can death eclipse the resurrection and the life? He can't. It can't happen. Death could not hold him because of his power. He is the omnipotent, almighty, all-powerful, sovereign God who controls all things. And his purposes cannot be thwarted by death. And he is God even over death. He's the God who gives life. And he's the resurrected Savior. And that's why Peter can say it was impossible for him to be held in death's grip. It could not keep him in. It could not keep him dead because of who he is. If Christ is risen, then death is defeated. Death is no longer an enemy. It's the gateway to see Christ. Not only is death defeated, but second, if Christ is risen then prophecy is fulfilled. You notice what Peter does next in verse 25? He quotes the Scriptures. Peter's going to go back to the Old Testament. He's going to quote the most obvious, the most straightforward, the clearest prophetic reference to the resurrection of Christ that could be given. He could quote probably any number of places from the Old Testament prophets 
He could quote even from Isaiah chapter 53 to prove the resurrection of Christ. But Peter goes back to a psalm, Psalm 16, written by David, which was kind of enigmatic to many of the listeners of Peter's first sermon. They were familiar with the psalm, but didn't quite really understand the meaning of the psalm because there were some things in there that they couldn't quite understand how they fit. And so Peter is going to give an exposition. He's given an expository message, an exposition of an Old Testament text. So he begins by quoting the Old Testament, and now he's going to go on and he's going to explain it. Look what he quotes from Psalm 16, verse 25. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. Look at verse 27. Because you, referring to God, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, that's the abode of the dead, nor allow your Holy One, that's a messianic title, to undergo decay. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And that's the ends his quote from Psalm 16. Now what they didn't understand, and what was enigmatic to them, was how is it that David could say, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, and you will not allow my flesh to undergo decay. How is it that David could say that in faith and in hope, and yet any one of those who are listening to what Peter is saying here can take a short walk over to David's tomb, where he's still dead? They didn't understand that. Was that a prophecy that was not fulfilled? What did David have in mind when he said that? Maybe none of them would ever know. A Peter quotes what is the clearest Old Testament reference to the resurrection of Christ, but for all of those who were listening, it was completely unclear. So listen to how Peter explains it. Verse 29, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the father or patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Nothing like a little empirical evidence to remind them all that these words, if they refer to David, are going unfulfilled. Here David has said, you will not abandon my soul to the abode of dead. You will not allow my flesh to undergo decay. And yet Peter could say, you can go to the tomb of David today. And is his flesh decayed? It's still there to this day. Then look what Peter says, verse 30. And so because he, that is David, was a prophet, and he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Peter says David was looking ahead. And David was a prophet. And David knew that God had sworn to sit one of his descendants upon his throne. And so Peter says David prophetically speaking of the Messiah, looked forward to the resurrection of one of his descendants whom God would sit upon David's throne. Now Peter's line of argumentation here is really easy to follow. Follow it with me. Psalm 16 speaks of a resurrection. Psalm 16 speaks of a resurrection of a descendant of David or of David. David is not risen. Christ is risen. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy of a descendant of David who himself would be raised from the dead. Now you can't argue with that. They say, well, why was David speaking in the first person? Why did David not say his flesh or his soul? 
It's just typical prophecy. Sometimes the prophet would speak in the first person as if he were speaking of himself, but the Spirit of God superintending that had in mind a future fulfillment. And that's all David's doing. He's speaking of it in the first person as he looks ahead and he foresees the resurrection of Christ. Peter said David, although he was king, was also a prophet. And he looked forward to that time when God would sit one of his descendants upon his throne. And he saw that descendant. And he said of him, that will not abandon his soul to Hades. And you will not allow his flesh to suffer decay. Look what Peter says in verse 31. He looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Those 3,000 people are looking, as Peter preaches this, they're looking at the other 11 disciples as well as Peter. And Peter is able to say, regarding the Old Testament patriarch David, he's still dead. He's rotting. He has decayed. He is gone. The prophecy doesn't speak about David. The prophecy speaks about one of his descendants. This Jesus God has raised up again. And all of us are witnesses to that. The eleven apostles stood before them. And Peter said, we have seen Him. We were eyewitnesses of it. Now, if Peter was just a witness to an empty tomb, that would never have convinced him that Christ was risen. It would take more than that. If he was witness just to a stone rolled away, or an angel, or an empty tomb, or the grave clothes folded neatly next to where the body had been laid, he never would have believed it. The Gospels show just how reluctant the disciples were to believe that Christ was risen. Locked themselves in a room, and He appeared to eleven of them, the eleven without Thomas there, and Thomas said, until I see in His hands the nail holes and in His feet and the hole in His side where they put that spear in, I will not believe. The rest of the disciples were just like it. And when Jesus did appear to them, they were fearful, thought they were seeing a ghost. And Jesus had to eat with them and say, touch me and feel and see that a spirit does not have flesh and blood as you see that I have. They were reluctant to believe. Now what caused them to believe? It wasn't just seeing an empty tomb because they would have assumed that the Romans had taken the body or they, like the women, would have thought that the gardener of the garden had moved the body. What did they have to see? They saw none other than Christ Himself risen from the dead. And Acts chapter 1 says that Christ presented Himself alive with many convincing proofs. For 40 days, He sat with them, He talked with them, He walked with them, He taught them, He explained to them the things concerning the kingdom, the things in the Old Testament Scriptures concerning Himself. He discipled them, He worked with them for that whole 40 days. They had seen Him, they had touched Him, they had felt Him, they had been around Him, they had heard Him, they had spoken to Him. They knew that He was risen. And so Peter could say, we're witnesses. Now it's hard to argue with a guy that does all this, isn't it? Quotes the Old Testament Scriptures. Explains the Old Testament Scriptures. Shows you what it was that fulfilled what has been a mystery to you all of this time. And then he says, I, myself, and these other eleven men are all witnesses that the Scriptures have been fulfilled. If Christ is risen, then death is defeated and prophecy has been fulfilled. There's a third thing. If Christ is risen, then Christ is also exalted. Look down at verse 33. 
Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Not only has the Son of God died for our sins, not only has the Son of God been buried and raised again the third day according to the Scriptures, but the Son of God now has ascended to heaven where He sits at the right hand of the Father. He is not only the risen Lord, He is the exalted Lord. And that is just as much an essential part of our message and our hope as the fact of the resurrection. He is not only raised, He has ascended to heaven where He now sits at God's right hand. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, If you have been raised with Christ, then keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 10.12 Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. 1 Peter 3, verse 22, Christ is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities were made subject to Him. He is not only risen, He is exalted. He did not just come back to life and be resurrected and then go live some in some obscure village in Jerusalem and live out the rest of His normal life and die again. It's not what happened. He rose in a new body and He ascended. And Peter witnessed this back in Acts chapter 1. He ascended where He now sits at the right hand of God. He is the exalted Lord. Now, that is terrorizing news for those who do not trust in Christ as their Savior. You know why that's terrorizing? Because of the fourth result of the resurrection. Not only is death defeated and prophecy fulfilled, and not only is Christ exalted, but the fourth thing that Peter tells us is that if Christ is risen then judgment is guaranteed. Judgment is certain. Look at verse 35. At the end of verse 34, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's a quotation from Psalm 110. Most of the Jews recognized that that was a messianic psalm, that it referred to their Messiah. A lot of them, for a lot of them, it was a sort of an enigmatic uh, psalm as well. They didn't understand who the Lord was that was being spoken of. The Lord, you have two Lords being addressed. The Lord, that is Yahweh or Jehovah, the God, said to my Lord. And the question was, who's the other Lord? Is it David? Some Jews thought it was David. Some Jews thought David was referring to himself. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And do you remember Jesus used that psalm in order to show that He was David's Lord? Because Jesus asked the Pharisees, who was David speaking of? Is the Messiah David's son? I said, yeah, descendant of David. Then why does David call Him Lord? How could David, who they thought was superior to their Messiah, call a descendant of his Lord? Well, they just had to scratch their heads. They never had an answer for that. No matter how often Jesus used that, they, they never had an answer for it. How could He call Him Lord? So who's the Lord that's being spoken of? Peter says it's Christ. The Father said to the Son, sit at My right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's the ascended and exalted Lord who sits at the right hand of the Father. 
until all of his enemies have been brought into abject submission. That's what the phrase, a footstool for your feet, means. It is a figure of speech that denotes total and abject subjection and submission and dominance. Until all of your enemies have been done away with, he sits at the right hand of the Father. Now put yourself in the shoes of these Jews who are listening to this. You've just been told that you're responsible for crucifying your Messiah. You have rejected Him in spite of all of the attesting that God did of Christ, through Christ, with the miracles and the signs, in the face of overwhelming evidence. You have rejected your Messiah. You have hated Him. You have spit upon Him. And you have turned Him over to godless men to hang on a cross. And because of you, your Christ has been crucified. And then Peter says, but, here's the good news, the Scripture promises us that He is now seated seated at the right hand of the Father until God makes all of His enemies a footstool for His feet. Now, if you've just crucified Christ, would you be considered a friend of God or an enemy of the Almighty God? Enemy. That's where they stand. If He's risen, then He is both Lord and Christ. If He is risen, then He is exalted to the right hand of the Father. And if He is risen, then all of His enemies will be made a footstool for His feet. I'm an enemy. I crucify Him. I'm an enemy with God. I'm a God-hater. I'm not a child of God. I am a Christ killer. I've crucified the Savior of the world. And that's where the crowd stood at that moment. Now Peter brings it all to a conclusion in verse 36. Look what he says. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And that's a powerful sermon. It's no wonder that right after this, when they heard it, verse 37 says, they were pierced to their heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? What do we do with that? You've just laid the death of the Son of God at our feet, and we all know that He has been raised from the dead. This group of people that stood there before Peter, they knew that. They knew the tomb was empty. Some of them had been responsible for killing Christ. Undoubtedly, there were some in that crowd who had paid the Roman soldiers to circulate that false rumor about the tomb being empty because the disciples stole the body. Undoubtedly, in the seven weeks between the crucifixion of Christ and this Sunday morning, the rumors of the resurrection and the appearances of Christ and what the disciples were learning had spread throughout that whole region. And all of them knew it. All of them had heard the rumors. And then Peter stands up and says, we're witnesses that God has raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand until all of His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. Listen, if Christ is risen, then judgment is certain. It's guaranteed. Jesus said in John chapter 5 that the Father doesn't judge anyone, but He's given all judgment over to the Son in order that they may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Because He is risen, 
He is the judge of all men. Philippians 2. God has given to Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and of those under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some people will bow their knee willingly, others against their will, but every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Hitler, Saddam Hussein, Pol Pot, Every atheist, every skeptic, every agnostic, every unbeliever will confess with their mouth, with their knees bowed before Him, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now where are you going to be at on that day? Acknowledge Him willingly as Savior and Lord? Or see Him as your judge? Because those are the only two options. You either own Him today as Savior and Lord, or you will face Him after you die as your judge. To quote Charles Spurgeon, he said that the heart that will not be bent by the love of Christ shall be broken by the terror of His name. If Jesus upon the cross does not save you, then Christ upon the throne shall damn you. If Jesus dying is not your life, then Jesus living shall be your death. And if Jesus on earth is not your heaven, then Christ coming from heaven will be your hell. Where are you going to be at? Do you know Him as Savior and Lord? If Jesus Christ is risen, death has been defeated, prophecy has been fulfilled, He's exalted to the right hand of the Father, and judgment is certain. Do you know Him as your Savior? If you don't, there's only one Savior to whom you can flee, because there's no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. Just Christ. No other road to God no other sacrifice for sin. No other atonement for your wickedness. You have to have Him as Savior. And I could never assume that everybody seated here today in this gymnasium is a believer and knows Christ. If you don't, then I beg with you today, as an ambassador of Christ, be reconciled to God through Him. He is Savior and Lord. And you need to understand the point of Peter's whole sermon. And the point of the whole Resurrection Sunday. God has made Him both Lord and Christ. He is the Savior of all men. And if you don't have Him as Savior, you will have Him as your judge. One or the other. Let's bow our heads together. Christ was crucified, according to the Scriptures, for our sins. He was buried... And He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And therefore, you and I should know that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. And He will be your judge if He's not your Savior. And I ask you this morning not to leave here. If you do not know where you're going after you die, do not leave here today until you have trusted Christ for salvation. We thank You, Father, for the resurrection of Your Son. Thank You that death could not hold Him, that He is the victorious, risen, ascended, exalted Lord. Thank You that He is both Lord and Christ. We owe everything to Him because of what He did for us on the cross, but all of the payment for our sin on the cross would be nothing if He did not secure our justification by being raised from the grave. We thank You that the grave could not hold Him.
that death could not hold him and that that was impossible. Thank you that we serve a risen Savior. Thank you that he has given to us that hope of eternal life. And we thank you, Father, that you have attested to it historically with so many infallible proofs. It's not just a wish. It's not a hope. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. It's none of that but historical reality. And we thank you that Christ is risen and that he offers to us salvation. And Lord, I pray that if there are people here today who do not know where they will spend eternity and have not trusted in the risen Christ, that they would do that today before they leave here. We ask that you would do a work in our hearts to encourage us and strengthen us in this faith that we hold so dear, to understand how the resurrection of Christ gives meaning to every other thing that we do and everything that we have, because you have declared him to be the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. And in his name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.